Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, a psychotherapist and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hi to Sean, our director in our studio. This is, this is a show about what matters most in our life, our minds, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationship, and the fulfillment and this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share with you the tip of the week about feeling humiliated by someone's action publicly. And then I share with you um, how not to traumatize yourself watching the news clips about the war. And then I will chat with Elisa Romeo and Adam Foley, the authors of Holy Love, The Essential Guide to Soul-Fulfilling Relationships and co-host of the Holy um, and Human podcast. Elisa is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and Adam is a certified somatic practitioner and yoga instructor. We are going to delve into unconditional, soulful, loving relationships. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast. I love to hear from you, but here first is the tip of the week. tip of the week. Have you ever been humiliated publicly? It's an ouch. It really, really hurts. Um, imagine a student at school that gets a verbal or physical beating from a bully. Um, a woman that gets ridiculed by her husband making a joke about marriage sucks. A man that gets put down by his boss in a meeting. A child that gets scolded in public. Uh, by his parents, um, any of those. Uh, a student that gets laughed at in school by their teacher. Everyone can recall a moment when they felt belittled, humiliated, shamed, put down by someone in private or in front of others. It produces a lot of extreme emotions such as shame, sadness, powerlessness, disgust, anxiety, and more than any other rage. These emotions lead to the person wanting and needing to isolate, they want to hide, at times retaliate, or revenge. Generalized thoughts such as, not fair, how dare you, what's wrong with me, the world is not safe, I will get back at you, I'm not important, um, I'm no good, people are bad, can't be trusted, or this always happens to me. Any of those or similar to those can flood our consciousness. Humiliation is stated as the abasement of pride, which creates mortification or leads to a state of being humble or reduced to lowliness or submission. You feel low. It is an emotion felt by a person whose social status, either by force, or willingly has just decreased. To humiliate someone 
is stated as making someone feel ashamed and foolish by injuring their dignity and self-respect, especially publicly. In most cases, it appears that someone is doing a deliberate act. However, many times it's not even deliberate and could be a superior stance, an up to down position while rejecting an idea, a behavior or a person. In couples, their microaggression shows up as sarcastic remarks in a safe family setting where they feel safe to share their anger. However, its impact is humiliating their spouse publicly, which in most cases, the favor will be re reciprocated by the belittled spouse. What can we do since we all experience it once in a while? Um, how you can handle the situation? First of all, think about it. You're not alone. Almost everyone has had a similar experience one way or another. If you know of people who have had similar experiences, share your upset. It's a common experience and you can see what other people have um, worked in healing themselves in a sense. It may not be personal. The person who usually belittles people does it to most people around them. It's either a part of their character strategy they use to gain control, or they're so self-centered that they're oblivious to the impact of their behavior. And I've met all sorts. Yes, this time was you. It's not about you. It's about them. But yes, you were impacted by it. It's a different feel when you think about it that, oh, that person did it to me, so therefore it's my issue, versus they are that way. And yes, it became my issue and I can take care of myself in any format that I can. Assist to see if you need to handle the matter or move on from it. If the relationship or the circumstance is a way that you may not avoid it and must continue seeing that person as a spouse, a member of a family, at work, at school, you may need to assess mechanisms a bit to address this matter to prevent it from happening again. However, if it's a situation that you no longer need to be with, a friend's group, a hobby group, you're at a store and somebody talks that way, you're driving and somebody does that, you may choose to just be out and move on and don't bother yourself with getting into a fight or a war with that person. See what you'll learn from this experience. This is how you put yourself in this situation. You may have observed this person behaving this way toward others and you thought, never happened to me. I'm special. And observe where you did not set boundaries for the people who are around you so that this might happen. Or that when it happened once, can you set a boundary for the next time? Reconsider revenge. It's best to act according to your highest value rather than strike back with from vengeance. You may want to stop the drama versus igniting more and more for the future. Remember, you get into the mud, you're going to get muddy. If something that you enjoy, it's up to you to choose. But usually with a person who has belittled you, if they did it on purpose, they're going to play that game. So you're just putting yourself in a war that even if you win, you wasted a lot of the time proving to someone something that necessarily doesn't matter to them 
If it was just a matter of setting a boundary, you could probably set a boundary in so many other ways versus revenge. And don't waste your time on it and your energy and your anger and your peace. Isolation may support you only in the short term. Many people tend to want to hide and isolate for a short period of time. Removing yourself from what is happening is a great idea because it minimizes repeated hurtful conversation. However, be cautious of long-term isolative behavior because it can lead to depression. Also be cautious that if you are isolating yourself, it is only supposed to be a break. And within that time, it's for you to calm yourself down and heal yourself versus go into isolation and brew rage and hatred and anger because that's just going to hurt your body and your psyche. Move on with what you love. Staying and rehashing the same scenario only fuels your emotions. You can keep rehashing it with other friends and gossip and do all of that, but all that it's doing is brewing negativity and your rage and you're going to get sick. Leave it alone. Assess what you need to do with the scenario and move on to projects you love, people who love you, people you love, and the ones who cherish you and just heal yourself. We all survive humiliation. It makes us stronger and more resilient. It makes us humble and it teaches a lesson to protect ourselves from people who may be toxic. Mark Twain said, it's best keep away from people who try to belittle your, your ambition. Small people always do that, but the really great ones make you feel that you too can become great. For more observational and integrational skills uh, to set intentional goals, intentional boundaries, and intentional healing for yourself, go to my book, Life Reset, the Awareness Integration Path to Create the Life You Want. Thank you. questions about when um, we see a trauma going on around the world, a war going on around the world. Uh, for people who have had traumas, um, it all gets ignited. I've spoken with people who have been in war, they have been a part of the veterans group, which they have actually been in the war, or they have been in countries who have experienced war. Uh, seeing the news, looking at what's happening it's completely taking their safety away a lot of flashbacks a lot of somatic experiences are showing up for them and um they're having dreams they're having the dreams about what happened or the extended dreams and those uh, fears are extending itself to the future what if it happens to me again whatever in any country that i am right now an issue would arise this disrupts sleep, eating, um, communication, interacting. 
there's kind of an anxiety that turns into agitation, the fear turns into agitation, and they're short in their family and their conversation. And um, they also rehash and re-traumatize themselves by keep going into social media, going into the media and keep listening to the news. It's as if there's a part of them that wants to find a little bit of safety with the different news, but they keep going and hearing the traumatic news and they'll keep opening the videos or the pictures and um, re-traumatizing themselves. So one of the best things to do at this time, if these types of news is really hindering your functionality and day-to-day -day functionality or even your sleep habits, and you still want to know what's going on in the world, please read prints instead of watching the news and the visual aspects of it and over and over again. Allow yourself to read the news or learn about the news once a day and preferably somewhere in the midday or afternoon so that you don't start your day with horrifying experiences, nor that you end your day while you want to go to sleep. Somewhere where it feels like you've done most of your productivity and then you go through listening to the news or seeing it or reading it, and then you have enough time to process before you go to sleep. Another aspect of it is, can you please also look at the positive news, even if it's around the war. So it's not like I'm just gonna uh, avoid what's happening with other positive news, but even about the war, I think that there's other positive news. You can look at all the people who are gathering together, all the support that is there, all the support that maybe the United States or the Europe are coming together in order to take a stand. Look at the surrounding uh, aspects of uh, this war, which people are taking, are not just feeling powerless, but they're doing something and see if there's anything that you like to do. There are people who are not part of um, you know, the military service or there's nothing they can do, but they are donating, for example, to United Nations for taking the food and uh, necessary items to the people who are going through the war. So there are ways that you can feel not powerless and powerful. Try to refrain from getting into any uh, debates or conversations in the social media because it's just going to activate you more. The social media is a way that people without any type of responsibility can just get into each fight with each other and don't even have to really experience the fight or have any consequences. So if it really dismantles your functionality, refrain from going into the social media and getting involved in some of these types of verbal fights that are happening. Take care of yourself in these times. There's a lot of um, sense of powerless and hopelessness and anxiety shows up when we are in here. And it's important for you to also reach for hope, for powerfulness, for empowering movements, for empowering thoughts, and in a way knowing that this will pass because all the other aspects of the world is coming together in order to facilitate for this to pass in, in a way that it will be beneficial um, you know, with the world itself. So take care of yourself and then see how you can be a part of a powerful stance about the position 
versus re-traumatizing yourself over and over and over again. Thank you. everyone. I'm Dr. Pujan Zane, and I'm excited to have Elisa Romeo and Adam Foley with us. They are the authors of Holy Love, the essential guide to soul-fulfilling relationships and co-hosts of the Holy and Human podcast. Elisa is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Yay, yay to all MFTs since I am one too. (laughs) Intuitive and the author of Meet Your Soul. And Adam is a certified somatic practitioner. Yay, yay to you too. And yoga instructor says, I do yoga. See, this is very personal. <laughs> nice. Great. Spiritual coaching, somatic healing, and his own intuitive abilities to connect to people and their soul. Together, they help individuals awaken and deepen their soulful nature within relationships. They are married and parents of two. They use practical stories from their trenches of everyday life, their personal spiritual experiences, and examples from their own work with thousands of couples to teach sacred partnership. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So you named your book, Holy Love. And then you say it has nothing to do with religion or spirituality. I mean, spirituality, yes, but nothing with religion. There's a holy, the name holy appears that. And, but you, in, you say that it's the love's original intent, a force pulling us together for connection, total acceptance and absolution. And um, is a result of clearly seeing each other for who we are. We don't need to become holy. We kind of are. It's just a matter of, taking it, uh, you know, taking ownership of all of us. So share, how come you chose that word and how come you chose it to be in that context? We really chose it consciously because we knew at the risk of people being like, wait, is this a religious book or do you have any kind of agenda here? We wanted to bring back the sacred nature of love because we find in working with couples, a lot of times what we're really craving is being seen in that place that is our soul, that place which, which is irreplaceable, eternal, unconditional love, a place where we're not capable of being mistaken as anyone else. We like to say if the person you love was in a coma, who are they? as a soul. So if they're not doing something for you or saying anything in particular, who are they in their essence and in their energy? So the book is really about how to meet each other in that place, whether it's with your intimate partnership or your children or your someone at work or a friendship. It's really like, we're all really craving to be really seen on such a deep level. I think also a lot of our work is just reframing our definition of love and how we approach love because we most of us see love as an emotion that overcomes us but we see love more as a spiritual process of becoming and we all know that relationships can get really difficult really quickly you know and we may many of us know the elation of that you know first phase of relationship but then often there's a lot of work that comes and our wounds are exposed and our past beliefs and our sense of worthiness is exposed so instead of having that be an experience that results negatively where we say, oh, love is just a lot of work and it's uncomfortable. And this person is incapable of giving me love or I'm incapable of giving them love. Can we more turn our understanding of it into a spiritual path? Can we approach it in a way that we see love as a process that's happening to us? 
So we really talk a lot about talking to your soul, that, that intuitive voice, that still small voice of wisdom within. And we also call that voice love. And so instead of seeing love as an emotion, you can speak to love. What, is lo what does love want you to do today? How does love want you to approach your partner in this conflict? What wisdom does love have to offer you? So in that way, we really did stick, wanted to stick with the name Holy Love to bring that reverence to what love is. Um, in one of the chapters, you talk about four different types of spiritual relationships, ego to ego, ego to soul, ego to their soul, and then soul to soul. So since you were talking about reframing many of these words, can you define, and I know that you have in, the, in your book for all the listeners and viewers um, to, to, to go and you know, read it thoroughly, but when you're defining different aspects of these words, then could you define what you mean by the ego? Uh, not what Freud said, but what you do yes. mm -hmm. say yeah. as far as what the ego is. And then what... Uh, the soul is and then what love is and if if love and soul you're bringing it intertwined together then defining the two uh ego and soul yeah i mean the, it's interesting because ego means a lot of different things to different people if you're talking to some yogis it's about you know transcending the ego or some people even in america who practice yoga have the interpretation of annihilating the ego your ego is not your amigo um, coming from a psychotherapist background where my training was in Jungian psychology. So not Freud, but Jung, his, you know, partner, and then they had the split. Um, and having worked with people who are schizophrenic and have a fractured and splintered ego in rehabs, I worked for years in rehabs. So it's like my understanding of ego is how do we have a healthy functioning ego? And the ego is who we think we are. So the narrative of who we are. And I like to see it like the iceberg where the ego is above the surface and you kind of see it. That's what we're known for. That's how other people see us. But then under the surface, there's this mass that is still the iceberg, but it's not always apparent. So that's kind of the subconscious or where your dreams come from and or your energy. And that's also a part of who you are but you might not know that part of yourself. The dreams might be foreign to you. That was a weird dream. What was that about? Oh, that slipped through a Freudian slip as I was speaking. What was that about that I was talking about? So a lot of our work is introducing the person's ego to who they are is more than their ego, which we call that the soul. And that is the eternal loving part of yourself. Some psychotherapist calls that the wise mind. Well, they'll just be like, speak to the wise mind. Um, we believe it has a little more than just a metaphor of, you know, this idea of wisdom. We believe it is really an energy and this other part of you. So we're kind of introducing people through meditation and exercises, how to know yourself in a more vast sense. And it's really useful in relationship because a lot of times we have programmed ideas of what we think is happening that might not even be who we truly are deeply authentically. And sometimes life is about gaining skills and, you know, achieving things, but sometimes life is about shedding layers of the onion to, to deprogram, to surrender pieces of who you thought you are to come back to your true nature. So a lot of soul work is about that. Yeah, I think one place we can really feel ego in relationships, and this can be an intimate relationship or any relationship, is when we're in a conflict and we feel really heated and attached to our narrative, uh, but we can also feel disconnected from ourselves. I think a lot of people know that feeling when you're kind of worked up and you're really attached to your point of view or really attached to your story, but there's also a part of you that's 
not attached to the story. And in that moment, I think it's easy to discern between what is ego and what is that wise mind? What is that loving voice saying? Uh, are you able in that moment to step back and say, hey, what's my idea of what's happening here? What's my egoic interpretation of what's happening? And what's my soul interpretation? And a lot of our work is really about why we call it holy love is we're really talking about unconditional love. Are we loving our family and friends and children and partners with conditions or are we really seeing them for who they truly are as a soul and then serving that part of them, meeting them in that place and listening to our soul about how to be in relationship to their true self. And sometimes it takes a little bit of humbling from our own egos to do that because sometimes we have these stories about what we think we need or who we think we are because of what we've been trained from our parents or from society. And it may or may not be actually what we really need. Um, how it lands for me is almost like the ego is when I see myself as a separate human being um, with all that shows up, whether there's a wisdom in there, where there's the skills, whether all the coping mechanisms, the way I need to cope with the world, strategies, things that are there that I think it's very important to be there, but it's a separate individual. And then I sense that the soul uh, is, is where I feel connected, not only as an individual, but now I feel connected as a species in, on earth, as a you know, the people who believe in religion, then I'm part of, you know, the bigger picture of the universe, or I'm connected to the God energy or any of that. So there's, there's a connection that takes us to a bigger picture with the soul versus um, the ego, which sees me as an individual. So if I have another adult and, um, way of speaking is almost like if I just saw my hand as my hand, or I saw my hand as a part of my body. So, you know, just having a separate, you know, entity has limitations. It's, it has its usefulness, but it does have its limitations. Or is it part of a whole system? Um, that's how I've sensed. And, and as I go uh, read your book, it's almost the same concept. So we're, we're, we're kind of defining this for you guys for, from all different angles for all the listeners and the viewers to see how it fits, uh, how these concepts also fits with uh, your own way of seeing things. So you can take the information and kind of incorporating it to who you guys are as, as you're listening to it. One of the meditations you had, it was really sweet. Um, and I, want, I wonder what the purpose of that is. In your meditation, is that pick a name, simply just pick a name for to represent your unique version of unconditional love. And then um, part of the meditation is like asking the name to show up. It's as if love is going to show it, love and soul are going to talk to you and tell you, this is my name. And then from there, you create this kind of, another relationship between you and that love um, so it's almost like um, you know you're talking about wholeness and a holiness and then you also in your practice as you're trying to do that you do these types of separations in order to relate from one part of you to the other so can you share uh about that exercise. Exactly. I mean, we're relational beings. And I think if we don't have an intimate relationship with our soul, we don't bother talking to it or paying attention to it. And a lot of our hypothesis of the book is how can we find our soulmate or live as soulmates if we don't know ourselves as a soul? So the first step towards getting to know yourself as a soul is to create a conscious, intimate 
present relationship with that part of yourself. It's very Jungian too, that we're not just one person. We have all these sub characters within us, our inner negative, you know, wounded child. And then the positive cheerleader within all these different characters. So what we're doing is we're really amplifying and personifying that part of ourselves. For us, it's a little, it's fine. If you don't believe that soul is a real thing and it's a creative writing practice, you'll still get a benefit out of it. But if you keep going with that relationship, you'll find intuitive information that you had no way of knowing starts coming through that relationship. Energy work that really starts to heal your physical body starts to come when you activate that imaginary quote, quote, you know, voice. So it's, um, we just get people to try it like a fake it till you make it. And one time I was talking to my soul, whose name is Sophia in my journal. And I was like, you know, it was, this was a couple of years after talking to her active imagination in my journal. And I was like, I don't know. Are you real? Am I just like making you up? And she was like, I'm making you up <laughs> the energy that you came from the love field from whence you were inspired by that's the energy that I am it's hilarious your ego thinks it understands everything and knows who I am or am not so the ego has a lot of you know hubris like the ego is limited like a horse with blinders on we think we see everything but we have like a small little piece of the pie and all we're doing is starting to play with what's outside of those blinders and we really try to not tell anyone this is how it is or should be for you. We're just kind of like, here's some exercises. So try it out and see. And what happens when you do those exercises is your brain state really goes from a beta state to a theta state. And it's like that Einstein quote, you can never solve a problem in the energy level in which it's created. And that's the insanity of egos and humans as we sit here like, here's a problem. I'm really annoyed by it. Let's talk to our friends and process it with everybody and keep talking about it from the same energy that created the problem. And we never really remember because the ego has kind of amnesia like Dory and Finding Nemo. We forget that we can take a second, take a breath, do some meditation, raise the brain state, and then re-ask the question to the wise mind, the love to love itself. And a lot of times information then coming in is really different than all the solutions we had previously, it's constantly a miracle and shocking to us over and over with clients or even children when you lead them in these little meditations. And then they just say these things that are like the most wise thing you've heard them say, because now they're like connected to a different place in their brain and their heart. Yeah. In the book, we're really moving away from any uh, dogma or um, rules in spirituality, because we're encouraging people to not uh, act from what they assume love should say or what love should do. Cause you know, you may think, or maybe what, you know, a spiritual persona may act like how that person may act. Uh, because that, if you have an idea of love, you know, your idea of love may tell you I should stay in this marriage my whole life, even if it's with a narcissist and it's not healthy and, or, um, I need to, you know, constantly be giving of myself, even if I'm draining myself. So it's taking our assumptions off of love and directly talking to your unique truth and your unique version of love. And uh, the information is often very practical and very specific and very surprising, but there's always sort of a resonance. That's what we see with clients over and over again. When we create that dialogue, when we split those two voices, like you said, 
uh, separating them for a moment between your ego and your soul, and then create that into a two-way conversation that, you know, it can be, it's a, like a relate, it's a relationship. So it takes a while to build that trust and familiarity with that other voice. But once you do, there's always this feeling of recognition of like, oh, I kind of always knew that was true. And this is what my heart always wanted me to do in this situation. A lot of times people say, oh, I know this feeling. I remember when I was eight years old on the beach and I felt really at peace and really connected to the universe. Or at one time I was under the stars and I felt like a sense of meaning and purpose. That's the feeling you get when you come back to your soul. It's interesting uh, because a lot of people look at some of these um, exercises and just say, these are the figment of my imagination or, you know, we're, we're doing fantasy work. And I'm like, yeah, uh, they can be. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I prefer you doing this fantasy work versus the ones that you think all the world is against you or all of the other one, because they're all fantasies anyway. And, so- yeah. And there's, there's yeah. also this quote from this play with Joan of Arc as a character and in, in the char- character she's asked this is the character of Joan of Arc but I thought was really true when they said you know God speaking to you through your imagination as if that's an insult she's like how else would I hear the voice and that's true intuition comes through the portal of imagination and I think we really in our kind of western society where we really put a lot of pressure on achieving and doing and performing we really minimize and disregard imagination as a portal to changing brain state and connecting with your higher self. So the first step usually with soul journaling is really meeting the critic in you that shows up. Usually this is nine out of 10 people. When you start to do the imagination work, this little character shows up. That's like, this is stupid. What a waste of time. You should be doing something productive with your life. And it's like, who is that voice? Where's the, what's the energy of where that voice was born from? And a lot of times there's just a lot of pain under that voice, like a feeling like we're not allowed to be our true selves or have our natural visions and imagination. So a lot of it's healing that split. Yeah. And I think if everybody has probably experienced that and based on what you were also sharing, there's a part of us that can just go to all the negative experiences of our lifetime and you know, feel victimized and sit in those and uh, be bitter. Or we can also focus on all the great memories that we've had in our lifetime, which might be just one second that we went onto the beach and felt connected with our soul, with the world, with the earth, with all of it, and make that also as valuable. Yeah, and maybe more valuable to you know the, the shift that can happen for us. And maybe those are the ones that I can choose to hang out with versus the you know the um the upsetting ones that i can re-traumatize myself with those kind of thinking all the time especially in relationships in that i can re-traumatize myself and my partner every day with a particular kind of thinking that you know i just which is negative and it's um it's in a way like abusive to them and, and myself or i can uphold some certain type of uh, you know, beings, belief systems, feelings, behaviors that can come from, you know, the, the wisdom from, from the side. I know a lot of times when I, sometimes I wake up and, you know, on a normal level, I'm taking a shower and I find my, my head going to fight with somebody. And then after a while, the other side is like, uh, what? <laughs> that's, that's yeah. exactly it. Our imagination is always doing something. I would argue a lot of a, an anxiety disorder is 
a lot of imagination about catastrophic thinking, black and white thinking, perfectionistic, all or nothing thinking. So it's like, instead of doing that, I think a spiritual warrior, someone who's really practiced in their spiritual practice is somebody who's more aware of how they're sending, what they're doing with their thoughts, right? And one way we put it is like, you have an inner remote control, what station are you on, right? Are you on station rumination for everything that could go wrong today? Are you on station gratitude? And it's really a station, like the station of your soul of like really setting your intention that that's the part of yourself you're going to talk to. And then just play around with if love, if I could hear what love was saying and soul is basically your unique version of love. And so it's like, what does love want to tell me about my fight with my mother? What does love want to tell me about my troubles at my job? What does love want to tell me about what I should eat for lunch? And you start to just really build a relationship with love. And it, it really works. It's kind of shocking how easy it is. You know, I think we make it seem like it's this really complicated thing, but it's, it's just talking to love consistently and remembering to do that. I think the hard part is having faith and uh, not falling for all the doubt thoughts. But I think what you said, I think so many people can relate to that experience of, of your mind going to these other relationships where there's been conflicts, like with friends or coworkers and, and getting stuck in it, right? Ruminating on that and trying to solve that. Uh, and that is a good example of that ego to ego relationship, because often ego seeks validation for its narrative and its pain. And that's not to say that we're not allowed to have our you know, emotions, but ego creates a narrative and it creates and then it thinks that it can get its um, solution, emotional reward, um, validation through egoic means, like Elisa said, it's that, you know, you can't solve a problem by the energy level it's created at. So it's really easy for us to go back and forth on that level. So we call that the first relationship. That's the ego to ego relationship. And uh, we have a phrase that is, uh, your trauma hurt my feelings. Because <laughs> that's so often what is actually happening, right? It's one person's wound is activating another person's wound and then just goes back and forth for a long time ping pong game and sometimes even in couples therapy you can focus so acutely on just that that you miss the bigger picture of what's happening uh but if you have that strong relationship with your own soul this is the ego to soul relationship we call this the second relationship that's the ability to stop for one second to notice if the nervous system is triggered, to take a breath, to create a dialogue with your soul, to get information about what's really happening, what wound is really up for you. Uh, and then there's the ego to their soul relationship. So we call this the third relationship. So that's my ability. If Elise and I are in conflict, that's my ability to intuitively check in on what's really going on with Elisa, opposed to reacting to what's happening in the room in the moment. And sometimes it's the same. Sometimes I'll check in with her soul and I'll be like, no, her soul is upset about this. You know, the soul has feelings and the soul has opinions. Uh, the soul's not always a pieced out, you know, state of acceptance, uh, but soul is always unconditional love. And it's always leading us towards greater fulfillment. Um, but we have a chapter called tough love, you know, because sometimes that information can be, hey, you need to set a boundary or you need to navigate this conflict in a certain way. So that's the third relationship. And then the fourth relationship is the soul to soul relationship. So this is the spiritual purpose of the moments. So that's our ability 
in a conflict to say, hey, why might our souls be orchestrating this moment? What might our souls be teaching us in this moment? And I think that also is that feeling you talked about of, um, I think when we're in our egoic mind, we try to create meaning and create purpose. But when we connect to our soul, we can feel purpose. So it's more like we discover the purpose of the moment. It's creating the meaning versus a knowing. And then yeah. It shows up in, a, in an intuitive sense and in a feeling. Yeah. Um, there's also a chapter that you have about um, inner child work where the part who becomes the nurturing parent to that inner child becomes actually the love. It seems like the love starts speaking. And one, one of the exercises you had was almost like the love is there, like a nurturing parent. And then there's your inner child and then the other parts of you. And then it kind of like works like an empty chair technique. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And the love is talking to all of it in a sense with this essence of this essence of, you know, kind of like accepting everyone for whatever it is and, you know, resolving conflicts between the inner part of us. Um, and the, you know, all the uh, intra-psychic issues become kind of like um, uh, each part kind of understands and then forgives each other. And then it has, so you have this nurturing parent that shows up with that voice. Now, um, if, and we have this a lot in therapy um, and coaching when we do is when there is no experience of that kind of a inner dialogue, which was ever um, modeled modeled <laughs> yeah uh, so uh you know where do you suggest uh, for people to go in your book to, where do you suggest for people to go and create modeling of those ways of speaking i mean what's wild is that there is a cosmic map within all of us, even if we haven't had it in this lifetime. I remember the first time I really realized that was through a client of mine in a rehab who was a heroin addict, incredibly abusive family, like level 10 abuse issues. Um, and she had a lot of resistance to the idea of a higher power in AA. You know, she did not like that idea because every time she gave her power away, it was used against her, right? And she was really struggling with that. And um, so I remember the the name for her soul she came up with, and she wouldn't have called it soul. It was just like the voice of love was gnome. And I remember she, this is a person who was really abusive to herself and others. And when she started talking to gnome, the voice that came out of this character with her it's like, I'd never seen anything like it. It was like, you haven't had this modeled in your family. How do you know this love? But this character, her ego didn't necessarily always agree or even be able to receive Gnome's love, but she knew consistently, 100% of the time, what that love would say. And I think for me, that really showed me you know, there's some kind of imprint of love in us as humans, that longing in our heart that is, I think, divine, that divine spark, that we can go back and kind of build that conscious relationship with. And I think it was so, she blossomed like, uh, she was one of those clients that's like, you know, through the three months of inpatient rehab, it was like a different person left and ended up modeling this love for all the other clients. And I always think about her because I mean, to it, it felt like such an honor to sit with that process and witness that and she didn't have it modeled to her like in the sense of what you would think you would need she just knew and tr trusted excuse me that inner part of her that I think is available if we 
but it starts with the fake it till you make it. If you pretended to know what love might say right now, even if you're feeling suicidal, even if you're feeling violent, if you fake it till you make it and you do have to fight for it sometimes because sometimes the energy is so heavy. You're like, no, I'm not even going to play this imaginary game. But if you can fight through that resistance and even sometimes get just like a teeny little piece, it builds like a snowball coming down a hill and it starts to kind of create this love force inside yourself. And it's one of those things like yoga, the more you do it, the more you benefit. So if you talk to your soul once a year, it's not going to be as built in as if you start talking to your soul five times a week. For, yeah. For people who haven't shown uh, that they can't, or it's not showing up, I would also suggest that there's a lot of role modeling out there that it might have not been in your family, but if you're searching for it, there's a lot. I mean, after yeah. the reason we wrote about Mr. Rogers in the inner child yeah. chapter is because he is such a model for loving yourself unconditionally. And we'll often tell people, go watch his documentary. Um, not, I haven't seen the Tom Hanks movie, but the documentary where you're really getting a dose of him as his energy and really, and we had Francois Clemens who played um, Officer Clemens on his show on our podcast because we love Mr. Rogers. And if you go on the YouTube channel and you, and you look under Mr. Quotes, people say, I was a foster kid. I had nothing in my life. And I would watch Mr. Rogers and then I would have my peace through, you know, so I think he was a huge model for people if they didn't have it personally. But I also think, um, yeah, there is something kind of archetypally within all of us as well that we can access. Yeah. And I think this is one reason why we so encourage taking care of the ego, because in many ways, taking care of the ego, making a healthy functioning ego is inner child work. Yes. Because if you notice the ego's impulses, the ego wants, hey, like in this situation, the ego socially wants to dominate or be on top or have validation. We can look at those impulses and then ask, hey, where is that coming from in me? Why do I want to do that? And not view them with judgment or criticism or perfectionism or self-improvement project, but rather come from the voice of unconditional love from within and say, what does my ego really need? What is my ego really seeking here? Because often it's an inner child's wound. Yes. So there's two sections here. Uh, one is meeting their soul. So first is meeting your own soul then meeting their soul, which is this imaginative aspect of, uh, and I use both terms, one is the, the real aspect of their soul or the imaginative, and I'm, this is for all of the audience, so mm -hmm. all of you who don't believe in it, look at it from an imaginatory conversation, the one you believe in it, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You benefit yeah. either way. So, you know, exactly. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm uh, yeah. holding both. Yeah. Uh, and in the beginning, things. most people don't believe it, by the way, it takes time to even start to experience it. So most people don't come in like, yes, I believe there's a soul. Most people come in like, what am I doing? You know, well, there's also, I think that, you know, your upbringing, or if you, you know, you went into, uh, you know, scientific conversations and like, you know, there's a part of you that just says, no, there's no, you know, proof in science. So I'm not going, it's like, either or it yeah. Yeah. it's like do, do not allow that conversation exactly to you away from this experience so i just kind of like hover around both of them so it's like yeah. can't handle both anyway so when you see when you are with uh with another person or thinking of another person there's a chapter in your uh, book that says uh rise above their ego so if they're coming and you know interacting with you from wherever 
that they're showing up, can you also see the same way you experience yourself sometimes being a rrr, and then, you know, the other side shows up and it's like puts you into this kind of like a connecting space. Know that the same as a human being that you have that, other human beings have that too. So even if they're part of them is showing up, you know, your mate or your children or whatever with the err, then, you know, know that there is another part of them also. And that's exactly. how maybe you could meet from them, meet them from that place. And then what you shared also is the seeing coming from that part of you in interacting with people. The reason I'm fast forwarding is because we only have a couple more minutes and part of your book talks about soul sex. So I fast forwarding. Yes. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, well, what you're talking about is, I think the simplest way to sum it up is it's about feeling into the essence of the other person. And it's about feeling into what makes them uniquely them. And so we really believe that every soul has an individual blueprint. Uh, we like to see souls as like complementary colors, like when you have two souls that fit well together that are going through soul lessons together that they bring out that vibrance in each other. And so uh, one ex just quick example of that is we have a story in the book that is about a young man in his 20s who went on a date with a woman and everything on his egoic checklist was checked. You know, she had a career as a model and he, you know, liked everything about her and everything made sense on paper. But then when they tried to be intimate, he, he felt his whole body just turn off energetically. And so he thought something was wrong with him. And then it was only after inquiring with his soul that he was like, and feeling into her essence that he was like, actually, we're not quite a fit here. So connecting to that person's essence doesn't mean it's always that that person is a fit for you. He or not. was really going from a pattern of having egoic sex with many different women in a certain type of a way towards now he is getting to know his soul and it was becoming more important, the energy between the two of them as they had sex. And, and so that, that energy was now a factor in terms of his attraction and it was becoming more and more of a factor. So I think soul sex is about, are the souls meeting in the bed? Like are, or are we just racing to orgasm and, you know, having some kind of a physical release or are we becoming more multidimensional in the bedroom? And so that we're being seen as our true nature, which can be really uh, intense and intimate, especially if there's a history of trauma. So it's kind of about holding space for all of it. The reason our podcast is holy and human is because they're both real and happening. The human might need to slow down and take a break. And what's this, um, especially with so many women with a history of sexual trauma, it's like, okay, what's surfacing in myself right now? That's an emotional that might not even be having to do with this person, but is activated through the level of intimacy that's surfacing. So it's kind of just really focusing on the, Adam had a lot of beautiful exercises that he put in the soul sex chapter. And we have on our website, by the way, free guided meditations. If anybody wants to try some of these things, we walk you through it um, where it's really slowing it down. So you're really starting to breathe together, feel the energy of each other before you start to just move towards the sexual like act on an on a physical level and it, it's again being open to the process of love in that interaction because often the ego goes into physical intimacy with an agenda of oh i'm i i'm craving craving physical intimacy because i want validation or i'm craving because i want escapism uh or there's lots of different egoic motives so it's stepping back it's 
becoming aware of your essence and then setting your intention when you come to physical intimacy of what are you really searching for there and holding those cravings with love. So you're not shaming yourself for those egoic desires, mm. but also open to more. opening to more energies yeah. coming in. So the same way we were talking about if the ego is, a, we see it as a small part of us and then there's a bigger picture uh, when we also only go into a behavioral aspect of a sexuality, we're only holding a very small part of us and we bring the whole part of us, obviously, um, it, it goes with a bang, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it yeah. makes for mind blowing sex. It makes for a, a opening sex to be a portal to real love and to the divine where you can really kind of go to a different place. So it's um, definitely worth playing around with. <laughs> That's what they call a true orgasmic. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, and it, you'll see in sitcoms, oftentimes in comedies, they'll say like, you know, you had sex in a way you like lost all reality and you went to this other place. And I think that's kind of what we're seeking is like a kind of otherworldly connection through this world. And how do we hold both of those at the same time together? Mm-hmm. Um, and a minute or so each one of you if there's anything we haven't shared and you really want people to know um, about your work about your own experiences your experiences as a couple as you know a group a couple who goes through this and you know your human side and uh, your egotistical sides show up and then how you take these exercises into your own world um so just share with us yeah you know, I, I think I want the audience to know that, you know, the words intuition, psychic, soul, these all can sound really far out there concepts, but really it's very simple. And this work is something that we naturally know how to do. And so it's not about adding new skills. It is really about just deprogramming our way of thinking and becoming more attuned with ourselves. So listening to your soul, getting advice from your soul and wisdom is as simple as stopping, putting hand on your heart and just asking what would my voice of unconditional love say in this moment? So I just encourage people to practice with that and play with that throughout the day. As you go throughout your day, just ask, hey, what does my version of unconditional love want to tell me about the situation? I think that's my message too. It's like, you know, when you hear ego, if you're just a person living your life and you don't really think about that, that can seem like a crazy concept and stuff. So it's like, at the end of the day, we do this with our seven-year-olds. We do this with kids all the time. You can do this. You don't have to be some kind of like speaking to the Kashuk records. But I think we live in a society that doesn't really train us well around these things. I think when you talk to the aboriginals and the outback or shamans in Peru, this is like the oldest news in the world, you know? So it's, it's just kind of like, we're just want to go to holyandhuman.com, try some of the meditations and play with it and see what happens and see how you feel. And you could try some soul journaling because it is nice to document it because we do change brain states. So later it's easy to be like, what was that? What happened? It's like a dream. When you wake up, you remember it right away. And three hours later, you kind of forget compartmentalize it. So I would say just play with it and have an open mind and open heart and see how you feel and notice how your life will start to shift in some pretty powerful ways. And you have a 13 year old. So yeah, these the teenage years of your children are good times where you yeah <laughs> i've been saying that so much in Absolutely. interviews recently it's like i am so grateful for the my ego to their soul relationship because our 13 year old is doing the exact th- classic 13 like going in his room shutting the doors and i'm like oh my gosh my baby is he pulling away you know and then it's just he's in this process of being 13 and 
it's really, it's really sweet to watch him, you know, go into his younger self and then his older self at 13. But yeah, I'm really grateful to keep that connection with him while he's going through this. I think I would lose my mind otherwise. It's useful. <laughs> yes. Everyone, holy love, the essential guide to soul fulfilling relationships. Elisa Romeo and Adam Foley. It was a beauty. It was really a joy to have the two of you um, in our show. Thank you for Such having us. We love talking. being here. Uh, for everyone who's out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.